All right, church family, good morning. Hope all of you are doing well. If you would, I would like to invite you to grab a Bible or open your Bible app or grab one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you if you didn't bring one. Turn with me to that passage that was just read. It's in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. I've had a number of people ask me why I don't just give you a page number of the Bible in the pew. It's because we have a lot of different editions of the Bible in the pew. So if I gave you the page number, it would even cause more confusion. So um, go to the table of contents and you'll be able to find the book of Galatians. There's no shame in that. Now I would imagine that for many of you, as that passage was being read, you, you likely were thinking this thought, what on earth is Paul talking about in this passage? Well, if that's you, you are not alone. It's never a fun day when, as a pastor, you've been reading a passage over and over, and you, you go to the commentaries to help you to understand the text, where the scholars are. They should know it all. And you open up, and they say things like this. Galatians 3 is one of the most complex and difficult passages to understand in all the New Testament. I'm like, thanks a lot for that. They're like, good luck. But as you know, if you've been part of First SF for a while, one of the, the key mottos that I have when I come to Scripture, and I would encourage you to, to take for yourself when you come to Scripture, is this. Keep the plain things the main things, and the main things the plain things, right? Let's look at what's plain, because here, here's the deal. In this text, while there are small intricacies of this passage that are difficult to understand, difficult to explain exactly what Paul was talking about, the, the main point of Paul's message in Galatians chapter 3 is very clear because he's simply continuing this, this theme that he had introduced to us in chapters 1 and chapters 2. You see, it is a continuation here. Paul, in those chapters, in chapters 1 and 2, introduced us to the truth that makes Christianity so distinct from every other religion of the world. The truth that makes Christianity so beautiful, the truth that makes Christianity so, so life-changing, and it is this simple truth that all of a person's salvation, their acceptance and approval before God from beginning to end, all of a person's salvation is not based on anything that they bring to the table, but is instead a gift of God's grace that can only be received through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul has told us about in chapters 1 and chapter 2. What that means is that as you sit in this room today, your status before God, if you're a Christian, is not determined by the family that you grew up in. Your status before God this morning is not determined by your, your political preference. It's not determined by your, your socioeconomic class. It's, it's not even determined by how good or bad you've been this week how unfaithful or faithful you've been over this last year or, or even the last 20 years. No. Your salvation, your forever standing before God is based entirely on what God has done for you, not what you have done for Him. Not what you will do for Him. This is an incredible, incredible truth. And friends, that is unbelievably good news. I realize that for many of you in this room, that is not new content, right? You know this truth, but here's the thing. I pray you never get over that truth. That's my prayer for you, that this never gets old to you. I, I can remember the, uh, the time that the San Francisco Giants won their first World Series here in San Francisco in 2010. How many of you remember that night? It was a tremendous night. If you're a Dodgers fan, it was a different kind of night for you, but that's okay. 
It's an incredible night. I remember it just like it was yesterday. That night, I stayed up for hours watching every news station I could that was covering the Giants championship from every angle, right? I wanted to hear it all. Were they giving me new content? No. The next morning, what did I do? I got up early and I went to the gas station that was near our house and and I bought every different newspaper that I could find about it because I wanted to read all the different stories. Was I going for new content? No. I was going because I was savoring. I was wanting to remind myself over and over of this tremendous news. The Giants were World Series champions. I couldn't get over that news. How much more should we as God's people never, ever get over this incredible news that God's salvation is not based on what we bring to the table, but is based on what he has accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. It should never get old to us. Paul in chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Galatians is not going to give us new content. But what he is going to do is he's going to defend this thesis. That God's salvation is a gift of his grace that can only be received by faith. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to approach these next few chapters as you would a trip to Yosemite. If you've ever been to Yosemite, you know how beautiful Yosemite is. And, and you can look at Yosemite in a number of ways. The, the first thing you can do is you drive into the valley. And, and friend, if you get out of the car and you go to the valley floor and you look up at Yosemite, you're going to see something like this if we'll has it on the screen. It's an incredibly beautiful place. You're going to get a sense of the, the, the awe, of the grandeur of, of Yosemite National Park. But what happens if you, you take a next step? You don't just stay in the valley floor, but you drive about a mile up and you go what's known as the tunnel view. If any of you have been there, you're going to look out and you're going to see this. Still Yosemite, but all of a sudden what happens? You get a greater sense of the grandeur and the majesty that is Yosemite. But what happens in that moment if you get out of the car? You say, you know what? I have seen these two different angles of Yosemite, but I want more. I I can't get enough. And so you do the grueling all-day hike up to the the top of Half Dome. You do the ropes. What are you going to see? You're going to see something like this. You get even more of the grandeur and the majesty that is Yosemite. Now, And all of those things, it's all Yosemite, right? You're looking at the the same thing. You're looking at Yosemite, but by looking at it from all these different angles, you get a better representation of what it really is. Well, here's the thing. Galatians 3 and chapter 4, I want you to approach like that. It's not going to give you new content. But what it does, what Paul is doing, is he's giving us different angles of this incredible gospel that we have received And his goal is for you to leave like you leave Yosemite. If you see it in all these ways, what are you going to do? You're going to leave in awe. His goal is for us to leave Galatians, the book of Galatians, in awe of the perfecter and author of our great salvation, Jesus Christ. May this never, ever get old. And so today it may take the work of getting out of the car and doing a little bit of climbing to understand this text. But as we do so, I pray that you will leave treasuring and worshiping Jesus even more than when you came in. Let's read it together. Let's look at the verse three verses as we begin. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh. 
Like I said a couple weeks ago, this letter is different than almost all of Paul's other letters. Paul wrote all of these other books, the letter to the Ephesians and the, the Philippians and the Colossians, but his letter to the church in Galatia is very, very different because it's a little bit more fiery. We see fiery Paul in these texts. This, what he says here can, can sound very harsh. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And this is harsh language. But what I want you to understand here is that Paul is saying these words because he loves these believers. He's wanting to protect these believers. You see, when it comes to love, I think a lot of times in our culture, we think the polar opposite of love is what? Hate. It's not actually true. The opposite of love is indifference, where we don't really care. How many of you, have, as parents, if you see your kid running into the street, how many of you are going to be indifferent in that moment? No. You're going to run, and you're going to grab that kid out of the street, you're going to get him out, and you're probably going to discipline him. You're going to teach them why they don't run into the street. Well, that's what Paul is doing in this text. His harsh words, his very direct language, is because he loves this church, and he knows that they are in great danger. They're already succumbing to this this teaching of what are known as the Judaizers. If you haven't been with us in the first two weeks of Galatians, the the Judaizers were a a group of false teachers that were were causing lots and lots of problems in the early church. They were coming around all, all these new Christians that were placing their faith in Jesus, and they were saying, hey, it's good that you placed your faith in Jesus, but if you really want to have right standing before God, If you really want to be loved and approved by him in a lasting way, you need to add the works of the law. You need to live by these customs. You need to do this long list of things. If you're a guy, you need to be circumcised, and you need to follow the laws of Moses. If you want to be saved, Jesus' death on the cross is not enough. You need to add to the work of Jesus. It's Jesus plus your work. That's what the Judaizers were teaching. And of course, that is against Paul's gospel. And so here in the first three verses, what does he do? He takes them back to their salvation moment. He takes them back to that that time where they first heard the gospel, where the Holy Spirit came and changed their life. And he goes back to that moment and he says, was it anything that you did that caused that to happen? I want you to think this morning about your own salvation. Go back to that moment where you heard the gospel, where you heard what Jesus accomplished for you. The Holy Spirit began to change your life. Did you earn that? Did you merit that? That's what Paul wants you to think about this morning. He says, if you didn't earn it there, if you were not justified by the law, by doing lots of good things, then why do you think that salvation is dependent on that? You see, there's this word that is going to come up a lot in the book of Galatians. We saw it for the first time last week, and it is that word justified. The word justification. I think sometimes when we come to these big biblical words, they can become scary and we just kind of zone out. But friend, let me encourage you. Do not zone out when it comes to this word justification because your joy in the Christian life is dependent on right understanding of justification. Your joy, your, your, your perseverance in the Christian walk, it is dependent on this. So what is justification? Well, we saw it first last week in chapter 2 where he says this, verse 16. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, so by doing lots and lots of these customs, good things, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Okay? So we're introduced to this word. What does justification mean? If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write this down. 
Justification is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous solely on the basis of Jesus Christ. Solely on the basis of Jesus Christ. It is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner, which all of us are, to be righteous solely on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. There's a lot of that we could say here, but, but the thing I want you to notice about justification is that it's primarily a legal term. The picture here is a, is a judge handing down, declaring once and for all that a person is guilty or not guilty, that they are free or they are condemned. It's a once and all declaration. It's not a, it's not a process, okay? Which means this, it's a once and, a once and for all declaration. You can't be more justified 10 years from now than you are today. You're not more justified today than you were two weeks ago. When, when God hands down a verdict, when he says that this person is either righteous or condemned, that is what they are. It does not change. And what he's saying here is this important truth, that you can be declared righteous. That means that you can be declared of right standing with God, of being approved and loved by God. That comes about not through works of the law, not through doing lots of good things and living up to the law. It comes because of the work of Jesus Christ for you. It comes by putting your faith in what Jesus has done, not by trying to earn it through a lot of works. Now, for you, this may be old news, but for, for the Jews of their day, that is a radical, radical statement. It's unbelievably radical. Up to that point, the Jews, like every religion around them, believed that in order to be declared righteous, in order to, to be approved by God, that they had to do all sorts of things. They had to go through ritual cleanings, and they had to obey the law perfectly, and they had to do these customs and all these different things. For them, this is radical news, and so Paul realizes, I'm going to need to defend this. How, how can I prove that, that God's grace is, number one, available, but also that it's received by faith and it's not through works of the law? Paul's savvy. He knows what they're thinking, and so he does something very important. Here at the beginning of this text, he takes them back to the beginning of their history as God's people. And he takes them back to the God's covenant with Abraham. It's a really incredible picture because he knows this. They're telling people, go and be circumcised, live by the law of Moses. So here's what he says. I'm going to go before circumcision. I'm going to go before the law to Abraham, the father of our faith. And let's ask the question, how was Abraham justified? How was he declared righteous before God? How was he approved by God. Let's look at it in verse 5. It says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, this text is actually quoting from two places in the very first book of the Bible. So if you would, put your thumb in Galatians and turn with me all the way back to that first book, Genesis. We're going to look at Genesis 12 and we're going to look at Genesis 15. Because these are the two places that he quotes from. These are two places where God makes a promise 
to the father of the Jewish faith, the father of, of, of this whole great salvation history, Abraham. In chapter 12, verse 1, we read this. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And here's the promise. Listen to it. Verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this is a major, major promise that God gives to Abram. He says, I'm going to, number one, I'm going to make you a great nation. But number two, not only that, through your family line, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. I'm going to bring my blessing, the blessing of God, to the nations. Now, here's the question Paul wants you to think about as you see this text in chapter 12, which he is referencing. Is there anything that Abraham had done to merit or earn this promise that God gave him? Had he done anything? The answer is no. We don't know anything about Abraham. For all we know, Abram was a pagan that was not seeking God in any way. And yet God, in this moment, comes to him. And by his grace, and totally according to his plan, God's plan, he makes this promise to Abram. If you would now turn to chapter 15, verse 1. God's made this promise to Abraham, but what's the problem? Abraham doesn't have a son, right? Abraham doesn't have an heir. He, 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 God says, I'm going to make your family lineage a blessing to the nations, but the problem is there is no family line. Abraham doesn't have a son. Let's listen to what God says in, in chapter 15 to Abram. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your re- reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now again, friends, this is a radical, radical promise, right? He says, Look at the stars. Your, your, your generations, the people that you're going to be a blessing to, they're going to outnumber the stars. Abraham's 99 years old. His wife Sarah is barren. She's 90 years old. You do the math. This does not look likely. When is the last time you saw a 90-year-old go out maternity shopping? It does not happen, right? It says that Sarah, his wife, when she heard of this promise, that she laughed. The world looks at the promises of God, and they laugh. But what does it say about Abraham? Verse 6, it says, And he believed the Lord. And what happened? God counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. This is the passage that Paul is quoting from in Galatians 3. What does it reveal? It reveals that, number one, God's promise, number one, comes completely as an act of God's grace. But number two, how is it received? It's received through faith. Through faith. It is Abraham's faith. It is his believing God 
that makes him righteous, that God declares him. He accredits to his account righteousness. It was through faith, not through anything that Abraham had done. Now, let me be clear here. This is not just talking about Abraham believed in God, okay? There's a big difference in believing God and believing in God. There's lots of people that have a lot of intellectual belief about God, a lot of doctrines, a lot of knowledgeable things. They believe there's a God. They believe all these things, but they have not put their trust and confidence in God. And that's what Abraham does here. It says he believed God, and what happened? He was credited righteousness. God declared him in that moment to be righteous, not based on what he had done. Paul loves this example of Abraham, and he uses it again in Romans chapter 4. And I love the way that Romans 4 puts it, so I'm going to read it. It's in Romans 4 verse 19. It says, He, talking about Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his body, which was as good as dead. How cool is that? It's like, my body is as good as dead, but I still believe God. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And I love this next line. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. But the words, oh, sorry, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not just written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will also be counted to us righteousness who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for what? For our justification. There it is again. That declaration that we are righteous, not based on anything that we do, but in our faith in Jesus and what he has accomplished for us. Abraham was made righteous because he believed God and he put his full confidence and trust in him. Friend, Paul's point here is really, really clear and it's really cool. What he's saying is God's grace is not just a New Testament thing. This whole belief in God's grace, receiving it by faith, this is not just a New Testament thing. This is here from the very beginning. It was here with Abraham who received God's promised blessing through faith. And if it's true of Abraham, he says it's also true of us. That's why he says in verse 7, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Jews held this, uh, this idea that they were sons of Abraham very, very tightly. They were very excited about that. They were sons of Abraham. And Paul looks at them and he says, here's the thing. The true sons of Abraham are the, the ones who respond to God in the same way Abraham did, through faith. And that's why we as a church can say we are sons of Abraham. I don't know how many of you uh, grew up in church. There was a song that that all through my elementary life, we would always sing this song called uh, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, so let's all praise the Lord. Then you move your arm and your legs, and it's this really weird thing. I have no idea what the arms and legs have to do with that song. But that's why we can sing that song. Some of you are like, I am thankful I didn't grow up in church. And yes, that is, that is part of God's grace on your life this morning. But we are sons of Abraham when we put our faith in the same God that Abraham put his faith in. It's not by our works, it's by our faith. It's an incredible picture of the gospel all the way in the Old Testament, all the way in, in the book of Genesis. But here's the thing, Paul says, let's not stop there. Let's, let's get out of the car and let's keep walking here. He says, let's also look at Israel's other hero. Let's look at Moses. Because here's the deal. He knows what the Judaizers are going to say. 
He knows the Judaizers are going to look at this and he's going to say, they're going to say, yes, you need to have faith in Christ. We, we aren't against faith, but you also need the law. You need both. They're going to look at the situation. They're going to say, yes, God first operated out of faith with Abraham, but after Abraham came Moses and God gave Moses the law. And so that trumps what God first did with Abraham. God used to operate by grace, but now he operates by the law. And so you can see how that kind of teaching would cause them to say, yes, you need faith in Christ, but yes, you need to live up to the law if you want to be acceptable before God. And so Paul takes that teaching head on in this next section. In fact, he looks at it, he says very bluntly in verse 17, his thoughts on that. He says, this is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance, talking about the inheritance, the blessing, the salvation, comes by the law, it is no longer coming by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. He says, here's the thing, guys. You're missing it. Just because the law came after this whole faith and receiving the grace by faith thing, it doesn't mean it trumps it. No, you're misunderstanding the point of the law. He looks at the Judaizers and he says, you're missing it. God gave the law not to save a person. He, he has a completely different purpose with the law. The law does not trump what God has first accomplished through his promise with Abraham. Okay, That's what he's getting at in this passage. You see, the Judaizers thought that behind God's purpose of the law was that they could save themselves. That if they could just live up to the God's law enough, that they could earn God's approval. But Paul says that's not the point. So what is then the point of the law? Paul says this. He says the purpose of the law is to show us the futility of our own efforts of earning God's approval. The point of the law is to show us that we all fall short. It doesn't matter who you are in this room. We all fit somewhere on the spectrum. You know, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, the most notorious criminals. We're all here on the spectrum, but here's what the law does. The law comes in and it shows us that no matter where we're at on that spectrum, we fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of perfect obedience. We can't live up to the law. We are not holy as God is holy. We are different than him in that we are sinners. We have a sinful condition, a sinful heart. Paul's purpose is to show us that we all fall short, but not only that, that we have no hope of escaping it. That sin, it, it enslaves us, that we cannot get out of it on our own. That's why he says in verse 10, he says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Here's the point. He says, if you're going to go the route of trying to earn God's approval by the law, by being a good enough person, by, by doing all of his commands. Here's the problem with that. Nine out of ten will not cut it. It says if you're going to earn, truly earn God's approval, you've got to be ten out of ten. You've got to do every law. You've got to live up to every custom. You've got to do it all with a perfect motive behind it. And he says, for this reason, no one can be justified, declared righteous by the law. The law is there to reveal that we can't live up to that standard. Because of our sinful nature, each one of us cannot do that. You see, there's a, there's a word that, that Paul is going to use a lot in the book of Galatians. It's the word the flesh. And when, I, when you read that word in the Bible, the flesh is not talking about our skin, okay? It's not talking about our physical body. 
The flesh is talking about that part of each one of us that says this, I'm going to do what I want to do. It's that part of us that says, I am the authority of my life. It's the part of us that, that refuses to acknowledge that there is a God who created us to whom we must give account for our lives. It's that part of us that says, I'm going to do it. I'm the king of my own life. Now, does the law create that heart? Paul says, no. It reveals it. That heart is, is part of each one of us, but it, the law, the commands of God, it reveals what's really there. If you're a parent or if you've ever worked with kids, you've seen this play out with your kids. Um, I think of my youngest daughter, May. She's three years old. Yesterday, I took her to Disney on Ice. And let me just say this. My daughter looked cute. She had on a dress. She had pigtails. She was happy. She was as cute as you can possibly be in that moment. But here's the thing. All of that cuteness can hide the reality that my three-year-old daughter, like every other child, has a very strong belief in their system that says this. I'm going to do what I want to do, right? That cuteness, it can cover a lot. But there, I can promise you, it's there in May. Now, what happens? In May, it lies dormant. There's that belief in her. And it doesn't really come out until when? Until I give a command. When I give a command, May, go clean your room. May, do this. I don't know if a three-year-old can really clean a room. I don't know if that's even possible, but May, do this do that. When I give the command, what happens? That belief that, that lies dormant, all of a sudden it reveals itself and it says what? No. <laughs> no. Or she simply just ignores my command and keeps doing whatever she wants to do. Well, do you realize we're all like that? We all have this flesh. We have a sinful nature that says, I am the king of my own life. Yes, it can lie dormant, but what happens? God's commands come in and where do we see it? All of a sudden, no. God, I'm going to do what I want to do. Did it create that heart? No, the heart was always there. The commands reveal the heart. Does that make sense? And that's what Paul's getting at. He's saying when the law came, it revealed this, this curse that we're all under. Sin has enslaved us. We are enslaved by this fleshly desire that says, I will not acknowledge that I must give account to God. I am the king of my own life. It was never meant to save us. And instead it says what? That cursed is the person that tries to earn God's love and approval by the law. When it talks about being cursed, that's not some weird thing. It, it means this, that we, are, we stand condemned before God. If we're trying to earn God's salvation through our own works, he says the law makes it very clear, you are condemned. The only way that a righteous, holy, just judge can look at our lives and say, innocent is not through our own works. The only thing that he can say to each one of us if, if we're going around this room is the law looks at each one of us and it says guilty, guilty, condemned, condemned, guilty, guilty. Every single one of us, guilty. It doesn't matter if you're a hardened criminal or you think you're really, really good. He says guilty. That's what the law does. It shows us that we are enslaved to our sin, that we, we stand condemned before God. You say, Ryan, that is a really bad thing. The law must be really bad friends. No, it's the exact opposite. Until we realize that we stand guilty before our God and that we have no way to rescue ourselves, we will not turn to seek God's grace. The law is good because it shows us our inability to save ourselves. It shows us that we cannot earn our salvation. Instead, it points us to the one who can save us, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the work that he's done for us. 
This is why Martin Luther said this, the theologian. He said, the principal point of the law is to make men not better, but worse. That is to say, to show men their sin and that by the knowledge thereof, they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken. And by this means, may be driven to seek grace. Friends, we should be unbelievably thankful for the law. That's why Paul says in verse 22, he says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The whole point of the law is for at the end of the day for each one of us to get on our knees before Christ and to say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to save us from the chains of sin that I cannot break on my own the chains that will take me away from you for eternity. Jesus, I need you to save me. I'm relying on what you can do and because I clearly cannot do it myself. That's the point of the law. And I love verse 13. He says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's us. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He says, how is all this possible? How can we be declared righteous before God? It says that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming that curse for us. In other words, here's the thing. It says that Jesus lived the perfect life, the sinless life that we could not live on our own. He perfectly merited righteousness. His life was righteous. But not only that, because he was righteous, it enabled him to become the perfect sacrifice that all the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to. Because what does it say? He redeemed us by the curse, from the curse by becoming the curse for us. Not only did he live the perfect life that we couldn't live, but he died the death that we deserved. Jesus took upon himself the curse of sin, the wrath that our sin deserves. And what does it say? He does it for us, which means this, he did it for you. He didn't just do it for the guy behind you, the, the girl in front of you, the person next to you. Jesus shed his blood for you. He took the curse, the condemnation for sin that your sin deserves. He did that for you. So that you might be what? Redeemed from the curse. That word redeemed means free. Free from the curse. Jesus paid the ultimate price. He gave his life so that we could be free and so that we could be declared what? Righteous. That curse no longer is over us for those who have put our faith in Jesus. You see, as we close this morning, this is one of those passages that if you're just going to the Bible and you're like, I just want some simple tips for life, this passage isn't going to help you very much. But here's the thing. The goal of this passage is to stop our running and striving for just a moment this morning so that we can simply marvel at God's grace that is available to each one of us through Jesus Christ. Friend, this morning, for some of you, I want to try, I just want to invite you. For some of you in this room, I know that there are some of you in here that I would like to invite you for the very first time to stop the treadmill of looking for significance through everything else in life. You're looking for significance through relationships, through success, through recognition, through sports, through entertainment, through all these different things. And friend, let me just tell you, your significance will only ever be found when you are in a right relationship with God when you are loved and approved by him. But friend, here's the good news. You can't earn it. You don't have to earn it. 
God's already made that available for you. All you must do is to place your faith in Christ. You have to believe God just like Abraham believed God, that his work was enough. You put your trust and confidence in Jesus and what he has done for you. I want to invite you this moment, in this holy moment, maybe for the very first time, to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Today is a day where you can be declared righteous. And once that designation has been given, it can never be taken away. Righteous, approved by God through faith in Christ. And there are those of you in this room that I know that you know Christ. You know he's your righteousness. You know that you're a Christian. The point of this text today is not, hey, this week, go out and try harder. It's not the point here. The point is this, go to Christ. You need him. He is your victory this week. He is your peace this week. He is your confidence this week. He is your hope this week. Go to Christ. My hope is that you'll never leave this place saying, well, I, this week, if I can just do this and this and this, I can better earn God's favor. No, friend. Fall on your face with your heart before Christ and say, I need you. The goal of Christianity is not for us to walk out thinking, what can I do better? The goal of Christianity is to help us get a greater glimpse of Jesus.